Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. And welcome back. So now that we know there are problems with these questions and that the questions can make the situation unintentionally worse than better, what can be done about it? Well, I think anyone interested in this should go to the NCSBN, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, to their website and study their suggestions on how to handle nurses with substance use and other mental health issues. They've collated great guidance, but because of the 10th Amendment, each state has the right to govern themselves. They Mm. cannot mandate the change, which I find to be um, absurd that the profession of nursing at the very top of the profession, the national councils and the ANA cannot mandate a change, right? Mm. We have to um, wait for each state, one state at a time to decide that this is something that they want to take action on, that it has the priority this year of all of the other things in the judicial system and the process that they want to take action on. So uh, the leaders in our organization, even though they know the right thing to do and they endorse the right thing to do, cannot mandate that the right thing happen. Also, Mm. I think anyone interested in this, um, if you've been enlightened today and awakened or shocked the same way that um, I have been over the past couple of years learning about this, I mean, this has been Dr. Halter's life. I just learned about this by accident and could not believe it was happening. But if you're interested, um, Google up the Lorna Breen toolkit, um, and you'll find it easily online, uh, the strategies that anyone can take in their um, state to start um, raising awareness and uh, creating a call for action and asking that the State Board of Nursing make a change. This was uh, developed in response to the death of the physician, Dr. Lorna Breen, I discussed earlier, who died by suicide. And again, her family felt it was this stigma associated with the medical board questions that um, uh, were uh, integral factors in her death. Exactly what we are talking about today, the relicensure questions. So the toolkit gives us words that could be used that are not stigmatizing and the references to support the change. But it's not as easy as that. Just call up the state board and ask them to make a change. Well, Dr. Halter's already said what her experience was. This bona fide scientist with the data to support the need for change contacted the board of nursing, went through all the proper steps years ago, and nothing has happened since. I have um, at least a dozen research reports published on suicide in the professions. And I have asked all of my colleagues and they said, well, one person contacting the board of nursing is not gonna get this change to happen. We need more than that. We need concentrated, organized effort, right? So you're probably gonna need more than just you. You're gonna have to create a team to address this situation. And I think, Marie, you've been working on this in your state. You've started, since we've learned about this, and you're an integral key player in the recovery of nurses in your state through the programs that you've developed, uh, you decided to take action. What have you tried so far, and uh, how far have you gotten? Well, we have certainly, we're certainly in the process of raising awareness. And our next step is going to be... Uh, putting our heads together, about a half a dozen people really engaged in this issue, uh, including the Dean of the School of Nursing and some other uh, notable folks like the former AD 
of the Board of Nursing uh, it's in Minnesota, who also was chairperson of the National Council on State Boards of Nursing. So we've got a fair number of people. In fact, one organization I just want to mention here is we have developed a, an, or, an organization called the Nursing Peer Support Network. And that's because we discovered, I discovered in about 10 years ago, after 40 years of recovery, not being aware of what was really happening in my own field, I discovered that the stigma and shame involved with chemical chemical addiction and uh, alcoholism is so great that it isolates nurses and nurses are isolated from each other while they're drinking, while they're in recovery, and while they're while they're in treatment, and then while they come back to work. To work again, the secrecy requires them to not talk about where they were. Mm. So, uh, the stigma and shame is a horrific uh, barrier that nurses seem to have, in my opinion, much stronger than even physicians, dentists, and uh, uh, pharmacists. That organization has been in existence for about almost 10 years now, and we have thousands of nurses who have been through it. They've gotten over the stigma and shame. They're willing to speak out even about about their own process too much, sometimes to their detriment. They need to understand what it means to your career in the future if you start speaking out. So we are uh, potentially the organization that will make the communication to the State Board of Nursing about the need to change the uh, language, particularly with chemical use. Uh, the chairperson of the State Board of Nursing has told me that, no, I'm sorry, she's the executive director, has told me that they have already gotten the approval of the Attorney General's office to change the language on mental health, but that the language regarding specifically substance use disorder has not been uh, approached yet. Mm. So we're gathering our forces right now, and the precise next step hasn't been decided yet. We want to do what we're going to do with the executive director with us, if possible. Um, yeah, one just one more piece of really good news. They invited me to come to the practice specialists committee meeting. Those are the people that investigate nurses. And they allowed me to tell my entire story of alcoholism and recovery, the impact on my career, and what recovery is all about, including the difference between recovery and treatment. And it had an impact on them that tells me the story needs to be told so much more than it is now. Absolutely. So, yeah, opening it up, talking about it, and then getting the board to change those questions, I think is going to make a tremendous amount of difference in the recovery of nurses and from substance use disorder. Dr. Manthe was um, explaining to us how she was taking some initial ste steps with her state board of nursing towards raising awareness about the licensure questions with the goal of someday deleting those questions from the licensure process in her state. And she described that there's even an, another twist on this, that the state boards might address mental health questions in general, but there might be more stigma or more challenges associated with addressing questions that um, 
are focused on the topic of substance use disorder. Now, Marie, um, you're working with lawyers too, right? You've um, teamed up with a group of nurse yes. lawyers that yes. are going to yes. help you on the process. I think what I learned about policy and nursing is that the state boards function under the auspices of the state uh, judicial system, and they're tied to these attorney general, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that when you take up a challenge like this, uh, it really is important to have lawyers on the team that move forward to uh, challenge the questions at the board level. And, And here we have five or six attorneys who were nurses first and attorneys second. So they call themselves nurse attorneys and they are a niche, um, they have a niche practice. They specialize in helping nurses with licensure problems negotiate those tricky waters without getting themselves in more trouble. Oftentimes they use the wrong words with the board and it increases the discipline. So they get a lot of help. And there's less sympathy uh, surrounding making the changes for people that have drug use issues, right? Like it's not, it's dip more difficult, it's more difficult to gather the uh, sentiment about the change. But what I, what I found on the death report of these nurses with drug use problems is often the, the report starts something with she had cancer, she was being treated with an opiate, then she uh, developed a dependency, her, um, her proximity to these drugs in the workplace led to diversion. She had um, uncontrolled, relentless pain, became addicted, and then ended up diverting. And once found in the workplace diverting, um, then the process happened towards uh, the um, sanctions against the license and could not handle that emotionally or psychologically leading to death by suicide. And I've also seen this with nurses with fibromyalgia, with uncontrolled pain, cancer, uncontrolled pain, car accident, uncontrolled pain. So these are not, um, we need to kind of put it in perspective. These are sometimes the best and brightest amongst us who um, going through life situations that are just traumatic, horrific situations um, to no fault really of their own um, through the process of this poor health and pain um, and ended up with an issue of addiction that could be treated and if we had a better process in place, I think those all of those deaths could have been prevented. So I think I, I really think it's important to put these um, situ- the situation in perspective to be able to garner the support we need for both um, handling mental health issues or substance use issues, drugs and alcohol, okay. and tackle them all together. Yes. It seems like between the toolkit created by the Lorna Breen Foundation and the NCSBN, the answers to this problem have been outlined for us. I feel your frustration. Why isn't this just mandated at the national level and changed? Yeah, we've kind of alluded about the fact that the states have the right to govern themselves. It sounds counterintuitive that the ANA, the Academy of Nurses, or the NCSBN cannot set the standards for each state to follow. But um, when I tried to find out about how did this get this way, I was told it goes back to the 10th Amendment. And um, 
now? Are they interested? Are our governing bodies in the profession of nursing interested? The answer is yes. I, I serve on the mental health and substance use expert panel through the academy. We led, we put together a board proposal this year to address this issue. Uh, the proposal was uh uh, accepted and a group was formed to write a white paper to raise awareness. So that's the very beginning of action is raising awareness. And that paper is now under review at the journal and we're hope, hoping, praying that it be published uh, in a timely manner. So we did have a group from the academy uh, write this paper and to, to hopefully stimulate the change that's needed in our country today. And right. a, a white paper raises awareness, but sure. it does not, again, make the change happen, and it cannot mandate the change. Right? right. All it will do in the end is say that the Academy of Nurses supports this message. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. And is this issue just a nursing issue, or do other licensed professionals face the same problem? Oh, it's not just a nursing issue. All licensed healthcare professionals are working through this in different stages of taking action and creating change. In nursing, we're far behind our colleagues in medicine. The profession of medicine is beginning to track their progress through their national council that's called the FSMB. And sadly, it took that widely publicized death of Dr. Lorna Breen to stimulate the activity. They were working on it well before then, but now they've got really some momentum around it. And it would be my hope that someday our national councils would be able to publicly track our project progress as well, take the great work of Dr. Halter, who's on the call with us today, and use that baseline and, and start tracking it. We, the profession of nursing, we have not started an organized approach for change. Even though this has to happen one state at a time, I think that to get it done in our lifetimes, we would have to get a group together and then check like you would uh, if you were um, pulling, uh, working in, a office, uh, in the office supporting somebody for um, the office of the president, right? And you check off one state at a time and who's got the votes, right? <laughs> so we need that kind of organized effort to make this happen at a national level and not let it look like the elephant is too big to tackle, right? Mm -hmm. 50 states in the District mm -hmm. of Columbia, is that too big to tackle? I say no, but we do need an organized <laughs> effort around it. Right. So policy change happens along a very long continuum. We're still at that the very left end of this, raising awareness. It's an important step, but we got a long way to go. We're barely out of the starting gate. Mm. So we said this issue was controversial. Has there been a board who had to stop asking for this kind of information? Or is this a growing trend to ask for the information from nurses? Well, I don't know of any board that has had to stop asking this type of information. <sighs> I this whole ball got rolling with the U.S. Department of Justice uh, alleging that Louisiana Bar Association violated the ADA. And after that time, this resulted in changes to their state board questions. And physicians and psychologists have also addressed the problem, mainly in the form of providing model questions from the national level, not mandating, just providing a model that state boards can follow. Okay. Do you think nurses should have to share their personal information regarding their mental health and or psychiatric history for licensure or relicensure? I've never seen a news headline that read, this tragedy could have been averted if only the State Board of Nursing had collected information about her mental health. It's right. just ludicrous. Yeah. The presumption seems to be that the State Boards possess the clinical skill, the labor force, and the focus to follow up on concerns regarding mental illness. 
and we know that they don't. Mm. Yes, boards do exist to protect the public. If there are rules that are broken, as in the case of individuals with felony convictions or sex crimes, then the public should be protected by the board through denial of licensure. Educational institutions also do background checks, and we screen out individuals who are ineligible to eventually sit for the Board of Nursing Examination. I want to talk a little bit about where I think the protect the public angle really can be accomplished in terms of mental health and mm. physical impairment and other types of impairments. Please. In terms of health, educators really are the first line of safety in terms of protecting the public. They are capable of assessing and intervening with students who are exhibiting behavioral or physical health problems that may impact care somewhere down the road. For example, I remember I had students at a state psychiatric hospital and one of my students had anorexia nervosa. And she came to the clinic, clinical area one day and she was just in a really bad shape. Mm. She was dehydrated. You could tell by her skin that she was dehydrated and she was like getting weak. And, you know, obviously I said, you cannot stay in the clinical today. You need to go home and take care of yourself, get into some treatment and come back and see me and let me know how you're doing. So I, I'm a psychiatric nurse. And so that is an area that I would definitely assess. But I mean, nurses with other expertise would pick up on other things. Sure. Fortunately for that student, she did get treatment. It was ultimately successful and became a, a bachelor's prepared nurse. Now, that's the first line of safety. The second line of safety comes from the uh, area of employment. So once a, a nurse, a graduating nurse, passed boards and gets a job, it is the employer whose job it is to provide oversight for employees. If a nurse is unable to provide comprehensive and competent care due to a health condition, be it mental, be it physical, hopefully management will intervene. Fellow nurses are also invested in safe patient care. I recall a nurse I started working with who drank soda the whole shift she was on. She never was parted from that bottle. Turns out she had alcohol in that bottle because I could oh. tell her mood was changing. And we did do some reporting and she eventually got into treatment and she came back and worked as an RN. In both cases, the story of the nursing student with anorexia and the nurse with an alcohol problem, it was the actual presence, physical presence of professionals that made a difference. A question or two on an application would likely not prevent potential harm mm. in the same way. Now, if someone were to say, what's the big deal? Just disclose the info to the board. It's private. What thoughts do you feel that that person should consider? Well, I'd like to tackle that one if I may. The question is problematic because if you don't report mental health problems in a state where mandatory reporting is required, you're breaking the law. And if you do not answer the questions honestly that you're asked, you can lose your license, right? Right. We already talked about the fact that the state boards of nursing are connected to the state judicial system through the attorney general. It's kind of a double-edged sword. I actually witnessed this in process, right? Nurses contact me who are survivors of suicide attempt and now I'm receiving calls from nurses who attempted suicide because of this process and survived their way through it, found the papers that we published 
and they want to do something about it and they want to be connected to change. And I have one nurse volunteering on my research team. Uh, I, my research is unfunded. She gets no money for it, but she volunteers to, to feel as though she's in the process of making change happen. Mm. So she was going through a disciplinary hearing and contacted me about it. And her state board asked the questions about whether she had been treated for a mental health problem. And she talked me through the dilemma and she was crying, tormented, you know, in tears. I could just hear the torment in her voice. She's like, I, I did, but what are they going to do with that? Do they want to know that I did and that I was serious about my recovery? So I went to treatment or did they, are they going to use this against me because I'm a weak person who needed mental health treatment? They don't tell you why they want the information or what they're going to do with it. The questions just come in and you cannot get through the disciplinary process of the hearing without answering them. <sighs> I knew that she had had a previous suicide attempt before, and I was quite concerned for her personal safety. Just reading those questions unraveled months of therapy. Wow. I'm sure the boards don't realize how dangerous those questions are. No. My research is on suicide among nurses, and I hear from these people who have survived attempts at suicide, and they confirm that what we are trying to do here is critically important. We need nurses to be able to obtain treatment for their diseases without shame. Amen. Dr. Halter? Um, I, yeah, I'd like to piggyback on what Dr. Davidson was talking about. And boy, that was a really touching story. Thanks yes. for sharing it. Um, civil rights really are a big deal. Uh, they're the pillar of the American government, uh, the American experiment, really. In this case, we have safeguards in place to protect the civil rights of would-be professionals from invasive questions on state applications. Unfortunately, not all boards are ADA compliant. I didn't go through what some of my students have gone through in terms of having a pass with um, psychiatric treatment, but I can't imagine how devastating it would be to choose between two scary options. And Judy brought this up earlier. And the first would be lying by omission and fearing reprisals. Mm. And I know some students did that, ended up doing that. The second is admitting to a stigmatizing condition and then fearing unknown reprisals. I sure would be interested in seeing a study that demonstrates that questions about mental health in any way protects the public, something empirical. The term mental illness connotes danger and unpredictability. And who wants a dangerous and unpredictable person caring for patients? No one, let alone boards entrusted with the public safety. However, the diagnosis of and treatment for mental illness and the absence of criminal behavior is not a board of nursing concern. Yeah. We've really honed in on the fact that nurses may feel uncomfortable seeking mental health or substance use disorder treatment, even though they have every right for this care. Are there any suggestions you have for nurses who might be listening and need help? Well, I would point the individual nurse to the mental health uh, resources made available by the American Nurses Association on their website. If you Google up just ANA suicide, put those two words in your uh, search browser, you'll come up to a whole collated um, ref, uh, set of resources and references on how to prevent um, suicide, how to uh, access mental health treatment. And they've actually collated a list of uh, free resources that nurses could um, access outside of their work environment. 
Now, I have another strategy that I uh, we talked about on the last podcast that we did together related to the um, suicide prevention work that we do. We've uh, tested a suicide prevention program at UCSD based on the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention um, interactive screening profile, which is an anonymous encrypted screening for mental health risks. So you can actually, if you work in partnership, if your organization works in partnership with the AFSP, uh, American Foundation of Suicide Prevention, it only costs about two grand a year. It's nothing for in the scheme of things. You can set up anonymous encrypted screening and that gets around the whole issue of mandatory reporting. Because what happens is the, the nurse will take the screening, it goes through encryption, it's scored. If you're moderate or high risk, a therapist contacts you back through encryption, through the computer, offers to talk to you and start a dialogue and communication and can even refer you into treatment without even knowing who you are. If the therapist doesn't know who you are, you can't be reported. Right. So right. it gets around the whole issue. So right. I think that program is being recognized, has been recognized by the Academy of Nurses as an edge runner, a model for replication. And I think until we can get past all of these archaic um, policies and practices that are uh, uh, increasing stigma against seeking care, the anonymous encrypted nature of this screening program is needed. We'll need that for many years to come until we get past this, until we're mature enough as a profession, mature enough as a country to openly accept the fact that mental health treatment is needed by many. Well, we've been discussing the issue of reporting to licensing boards. Can you think of any other option for reporting that nurses would be more comfortable reporting to? Well, you know, if we take the issue again, specifically focused on substance use disorder, particularly alcoholism, which has a 10% rate in nursing as in the whole rest of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, so 10%, I always like to say this to a chief nurse who needs to wake up call about what's going on in her own department. 10% of the people in your department are either using a substance or in recovery from a substance um, which way would you like it to be? How about how about hiring some nurses who are in recovery instead of letting it be a blindfolded question? In the but specifically, what I started off to say is that in a substance use disorder, there is a capacity of full blown recovery without ever going into treatment. And I'm, I'm a sort of classic example of that. When I was fired from my position at Yale New Haven. Um, I was totally devastated. I can I got begin to tell you what that was like. I can go into that more later if you want. But specifically, I did not go to treatment. Well, no, I did go to treatment. I take that back. I went to treatment as a way of getting out of society for a while and getting my head screwed on right. I've known many nurses, however, who got into good good recovery simply by finding a guide someone in recovery that they could get help with, and going to meetings. There are all kinds of meetings that uh, are off the record. They are confidential meetings. No uh, names are taken. There's no sign-up sheets. And it's an opportunity for that group support that the researcher John Kelly at Harvard has uh, definitely shown that group support over time in recovery is by far the most successful form of, of recovery. 
And uh, that includes all treatment centers and all different approaches to treatment. Okay. So that's possible. There is certainly a way, a, a way to thread the needle into one's own recovery that does not require treatment for that ugly question on state boards. Got it. Well, this is a fascinating conversation that we want to have continue. So we are going to move forward to a third episode. Please uh, come back and listen to this conversation with Drs. Davidson, Halter, and Manthe. I am Leanna McGuire, your host for Elite Learning with Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.